Hey, you. Yeah, you with the comfy pants eating leftovers. Did you know that if you're scrolling around doing a little shopping on your phone right now, you're in good company. For the first time this year, more people will do their holiday shopping and browsing on their phones and tablets than on a computer. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And we will, of course, cover that. Plus, who does not get to wear the comfy pants and is working this weekend? So I didn't really get to spend Thanksgiving with my family that year, and it was kind of disappointing. And how peanut butter, yes, peanut butter, tells a story of lobbying, money, and how regulation shapes what we do every day. We are going to start with the Internet, because this week the Federal Communications Commission said they want to get rid of net neutrality rules that have been around for a couple of years— It sounds wonky, I know, but we're going to explain it, because it could affect everything you do online. So this week, five things you need to know about net neutrality. Hi, my name's Ashley Esqueda, and I'm a senior editor for CNET.com. Let's start at the beginning. The very first thing anybody should know about net neutrality is what it is. So the idea of net neutrality is that all internet traffic and all internet sites are created equal, meaning... I don't have to wait a really long time to get access to Netflix. No matter how big or small your business is, people should be able to access your website without any issues and for whatever internet tier you own. Now, the chair of the FCC, Ajit Pai, said that under his proposal, quote, the federal government will stop micromanaging the internet and instead encourage internet service providers to voluntarily share more about what they're doing. So what could that be? Well, here's point two. So if net neutrality is repealed, that means internet providers could say, oh, well, we're going to make the internet a lot like your old cable bill, right? So when we had these old cable bills, it was if you want this tiered package, it comes with these channels. While repealing net neutrality would mean that all of these internet service providers and not just Charter, Comcast, Time Warner, Verizon... Uh, Also, your wireless internet providers, so T-Mobile, also Verizon Wireless, and AT&T would be able to say, you have to pay extra for tiers that allow you access or the correct amounts of speed for these specific websites. That means big money for internet service providers, but how about online businesses? The third thing about net neutrality repeal that you should know is this would really hurt small businesses and startups looking to make a splash or come in and disrupt any kind of industry. So companies like Snapchat, who really kind of made their way based on word of mouth, that really wouldn't necessarily be an opportunity for them anymore because they would have to make deals with every single internet service provider, just like you would an old cable package, to offer that quote-unquote channel or that service or that app in an internet package. So it's definitely a thing that hurts any kind of small business looking to, you know, get seen by a lot of people. Which brings us to point number four. The internet won't look the same. Even sites that are huge now might not have been able to grow without net neutrality. Even sites like Facebook wouldn't exist under these new rules, or they would not have been able to make it. So Facebook started off as a really small site. It was, you know, based on a college campus only and then grew into one of the biggest media companies in the world. 
And under rules like this, a, a company like Facebook would have had to have paid probably inordinate amounts of money because of the amounts of traffic coming to the site to be able to continue growing and to be able to continue being seen by people. All right, so that covers the business side, but what about you, the consumer? As an individual, net neutrality is a really important part of everybody's life, right? So I like to tell people it's not a political issue. You can ask anybody. You can ask a Trump supporter how they would feel if, let's say, Time Warner Cable decided they couldn't see Fox News anymore unless they paid an extra premium for that tier. You could ask your liberal cousin how they would feel if a internet service provider decided they couldn't go on Reddit or Dig anymore. I mean, these are the concerns that people have if net neutrality is repealed, and they are valid concerns. Ashley Esqueda is a senior editor for the tech news site CNET.com. The FCC is going to vote on this proposal on December 14th. And if you have five things in the news or the economy that you've wondered about, just let us know. You can reach us at weekend at marketplace.org or reach out on Twitter. We are at Marketplace WKND. a few moments talking immigration. About 50,000 Haitians who are now living in the U.S. under temporary protected status will have to leave by mid-2019. That's what the Department of Homeland Security announced this week. The special measure was put in place back in 2010 after Haiti's devastating earthquake. Almost eight years on, the Trump administration said, quote, after an intense interagency review process, unquote, Haiti is now stable enough to welcome its citizens back. Some immigration advocates say not so fast and also question the impact on the U.S. economy. According to a report by the Immigrant Legal Resource Center earlier this year, the removal of TPS recipients from Haiti, El Salvador, and Honduras could cost U.S. taxpayers $3.1 billion in deportation costs and more than $45 billion in reduced GDP over the next decade. There are other countries on the temporary protected status list, including Somalia, Yemen, and Syria. And I'm going to stay with Syria, because there's another side to immigration, whether someone is in the United States under TPS, as a refugee, or by choice. And that's the task of rebuilding an economic life. Here's one couple's story. My name is Jay Abdul. I am a Syrian actor. I had to flee my country in 2011. My name is Fadia Fashe. I am a visual artist, activist for women's rights. I came before my husband. I came as a student to the U.S. and I was planning to study, finish and go back home. Then when the situation in Syria went from bad to worse, I called my husband and asked him to come and visit me. When I left Syria, I didn't think for a minute it will be forever. I didn't want to leave my country because I had a wonderful career. But I wasn't safe. We decided there is no home anymore. And this is our country and we are not going back. Suddenly you are no one. You have to seek everything to start from scratch. I'm asking for help. I'm asking for financial help because I couldn't move any of my assets out of Syria because nobody could. All my savings were confiscated in Syria because I took stand by the people. We lost our savings, our retirement plan, our houses, 
everything we built back home. Whenever you are a Sali in the U.S., you don't have any help or support because you are not approved yet. After approval, you get help for just eight months. I was looking at my husband telling him we could be homeless and no one will come to us to ask us, do you need anything or any help? We needed someone just to tell us how to turn the heater on, to tell us like, oh, you need a credit history in order to get an apartment. We kept applying for apartments, sending emails, and we were always rejected and we didn't know why. We didn't know about the credit. We didn't know that they don't give apartments to jobless people. We started thinking it was personal just because we were Syrians. The system in Syria is totally different. We don't have the credit. We don't use credit cards. We deal only in cash. If you go to rent an apartment, you don't need any credit. Actually, the only way we were able to get this apartment by paying six months in advance, but that was all our money. I think the resettlement program for the refugees are very limited. This assistant is just will never really cover your expenses for rent. I think I applied for more than 300 jobs and I didn't get an interview. I saw an ad saying that we're looking for drivers to deliver flowers and they hired me. I was delivering flowers like two or three days a week, making $300 a month, which is nothing. We hardly have money to eat. We ate bones for many, many weeks because we don't have enough money. After all, I found Uber and Lyft, and I started driving for those companies. I made more money. Now that we have uh, friends, we feel family. Yes, we don't have our family here, but we have a foster family. I know many people. Refugees, they would not have been survived without the help of other American people. I'm so grateful and happy that my wife has a decent job. So we are financially safe, we are secured. We don't fear tomorrow, you know. We can pay our apartment. We can afford to lease a car and to have food on the table. It's not easy to suddenly become a refugee. Ask anyone. No one would think in his life that he will be a refugee one day, including myself. That was Fadia Afashe along with her husband, Jay Abdo. The piece was produced by Alyssa Dudley. And you can read more about Fadia and Jay's story on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and since this is Marketplace, every week we like to take a look at the news by the numbers with Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, lead us off. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 
24,000. That's how many SUVs Volvo is selling to Uber. The rideshare company is gearing up to make a fleet of self-driving cars. The deal is the largest so far between a car manufacturer and a tech company, but it's far from the first. Lyft has partnered with Ford, rental company Avis with Google, and Hertz with Apple. Three. That's the number of Star Wars-themed pop-up bars open now in the U.S. The Dark Side Bar is back after some success during its stint in L.A. last year. Now if you're in D.C., New York, or L.A., you can embrace the dark side with themed drinks and food. Sounds like my kind of spot. Unfortunately, tickets run between 33 and 40 bucks. May the force be with you, Tony. 81,483,780. That's about how many dollars Americans spend on pie during Thanksgiving week, according to Nielsen. That's a whole lot of pumpkin, apple, and pecan. If you're a millennial, though, that pie will be spread out across more than one meal. Nielsen also says that between family gatherings and Friendsgivings, the average millennial eats an average of 2.7 Thanksgiving meals. Two-thirds. That's a proportion of people who said they watch movies and TV in public, according to a new poll from Netflix and SurveyMonkey. Out of that group, 37% admitted that they streamed from work. And 12% copped to watching in public restrooms. Gross. can't do a business show without talking about the shopping and the frenzy around shopping this weekend. Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday. Honestly, it can be a little repetitive to just talk about deals every year. So we're going to take a look at some of the big trends in the holiday shopping landscape. For that, we've got Jason Del Rey, an editor at Recode. And they recently published a story saying more people will do holiday shopping on mobile this year than on desktops. That Seems like a game changer, is it? It is and it isn't. So it is because people are doing more and more research on their phones and also actually making transactions. And so, you know, if you don't have at least a decent presence on mobile, you're missing out. On the other hand, there's still a big gap between uh, what's called the conversion rate in purchases between desktop and mobile. In short, that basically means out of every 100 visitors to a site on desktop, more of them actually complete a purchase than they do huh. on mobile. And, and that's still because, you know, there's a smaller screen on mobile. It's harder to enter your credit card credentials. Um, and also it's just, you know, typically harder to navigate mobile web pages than it is desktop. That's gotten better over the last few years, but there are still a lot of companies that need to do work there. You know, we do these shopping stories around these holiday weekends uh, almost every year. The, the thing that stood out to me this year was your story about mobile shopping. But I'm wondering, you know, you edit this stuff. What stands out to you this year? One of the big things that stands out is the fact that companies are treating Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and in fact, the whole weekend, sort of the same way. They want to have strong deals the whole time and both in-store and online to capture as many sales as possible. And so you sort of see a, you know, you may have some some deals that pop up just on given day, but a lot of them will be available throughout the, the entirety of the weekend. 
Is there a difference between, say, your primarily e-commerce business, you know, Stitch Fix or Glossier, which, you know, sells sells makeup aimed at millennials and skincare? Um, is there a difference in how those startup-y businesses handle this versus your giants like Best Buy? Well, you know, when you look at the startup companies, a lot of them try to take a really different tact because they need to compete effectively. You know, they have a smaller audience, so they ideally know them better. So in mm. some cases, there's there's a company called Everlane, which sells men's and women's clothing online. On Black Friday, they they publicize that they donate a percentage of their sales to a given cause. And so I think last year it was you know, to buy helmets for their factory workers in in uh, an Asian country who most of them take scooters to work but don't have helmets. And so, you know, that that's sort of a little hook. You know, it's somewhat marketing. It's somewhat, you yeah. know, really trying to do a good thing. But we see some of those little hooks to try to connect and break through with customers in an authentic way. Speaking of breaking through – you know, if you're a customer, there's just so much out there from kind of the traditional doorbuster craziness to, you know, the ads that are following you around on the Internet. Is there a way to figure out, like, what's actually a deal? There's no easy answer to this. I can say on Amazon there specifically, there are several tools you can use that show you the price history of an item there are a bunch. One's called Camel, Camel, Camel. There's another one called Honey, H-O-N-E-Y. There's another one I've been using called Keepa. That's K-E-E-P-A. And so at a minimum, you will see whether this item over the last month or two months has been at this price before or maybe even lower. And so if it has, perhaps it'll come back. And if you don't have the money now or don't want to make the purchase now, Maybe you have a shot in the future. That company called Honey also has a new feature that allows you to to them to notify you when a price drops on a given product on Amazon. So Amazon specific, there are some ways when you go out broader, it gets much trickier, unfortunately. How big is the Thanksgiving season and heading into the Christmas and holiday season? You know, how, how big is it for the retail industry as a whole this year? So starting with the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, going through the end of the year, it make it can make up anywhere from thirty to forty percent of sales uh, for a company for for the whole year for a company. So I mean, it's that that pretty much says it all. It's it's a huge weekend, and, and so the balancing act you want to see from retailers um, is. You know, they want to they want to get people in their door. They want to get their loyal people. They want to get new people in the door and they want to really take advantage of this time. But can you do it in a way that's either slightly profitable or, or a little break even so that, again, uh, you're not looking at digging yourself out from a profitability perspective and not being able to sort of even support discounts the following year? Jason Del Rey is a senior editor for Commerce at Recode. Thank you so much. Thank you.
staying with all things holiday season, Thanksgiving weekend, coming football, leftovers, and of course, those ubiquitous shopping deals. It's Black Friday, Black Friday, gotta go to Kohl's on Black Friday. Everybody's going there at midnight. That's a little bit of a Kohl's commercial from 2011. Since then, more stores have opened on Thanksgiving Day to try to get an edge over their competition. So for Margaret Karch-Hooten, that meant spending Thanksgiving at work, not with friends or family. She's a garden associate at a Placerville, California, Walmart. Hooten worked this Thanksgiving and last. Some of the nice ladies at our store do cook Thanksgiving dinner for the employees. Thanksgiving break room style. We started our sales at 6 o'clock last year on Thanksgiving Day, and people were there because of the great deals that they put out and advertised. Across the board, Thanksgiving weekend shoppers spend about 300 bucks each. Last year, stores made about $9 billion. That is a lot of money up for grabs, but... Taking a stand against the Black Friday frenzy, a major retailer is refusing to open on Black Friday this year. REI. REI. The outdoor retailer REI. For the third year in a row, the outdoor apparel store REI closed on both Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Their 12,000 employees got paid holidays. Alex Jarman manages the New York City REI store. One of the, the sayings you hear around REI all the time is a life outside is a life well lived. So being closed the day after Thanksgiving um, really is a no-brainer for us. He says he's not really worried about the store missing out on cash. And besides, it's nice to take a breath before things get really busy. We can all go out, relax, and be really calm before we head into the holiday season that we know is going to be very strenuous and sometimes stressful. So it gives us that chance to really catch our breath and get ready for the holidays. That's the plan for Ace Hanley, a sales specialist at REI in West Des Moines, Iowa. Her dad works at the same store. For years, they've taken part in the company's Opt Outside campaign. The campaign's message is pretty simple. Go outside, not to the mall. Yeah, so last Thanksgiving, I actually went bike riding with my dad. Uh, We just kind of made a day of it. Uh, We brought some food along, had a picnic in the park, biked along the amazing bike trails that we have here in Des Moines, and spent some time with the family. That's a change of pace for Hanley. Before REI, she worked at a mall coffee shop. So on Thanksgiving, she had to work. So I didn't really get to spend Thanksgiving with my family that year, and it was kind of disappointing Having Thanksgiving and Black Friday holidays pays off for workers and the company. I mean, this is a business after all. Jarman, the store manager from before, says that perk actually brings job seekers to REI. Some of our employees actually have sought us out because they heard about Opt Outside. Some of them have worked retail jobs where they actually started to open on Thanksgiving. So it's really been a great thing for our employees. And they might need that break, too. Shoppers are expected to spend up to $680 billion at stores before Christmas. That story came from Marketplace's Yana Kasperkevich. You can let us know about your shopping plans for this holiday season. We're online at Marketplace.org. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, and on this show, we like to learn about the economic lives of writers, musicians, and other people in the public eye. It's called the Marketplace Quiz, and this Thanksgiving weekend, here's one of our favorites from last year. Hi, I'm Zoe Deschanel, and I am an actor and musician. So first question, in an ex-life, what would your career be? 
in a next life. Well, it's hard to say because there are like things that I feel like I could do now, maybe. But um, maybe uh, making children's clothing. Are we talking toddler level baby? Baby like... through toddler. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I have rage. a toddler, and the clothing, you know, the clothes are so cute. So. <laughs> And I made her some little outfits before she was born that are really sweet. So. What is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? One of those vacuums that, <laughs> that that's like a robot vacuum. A Roomba? Yeah. Huh. I've just heard good things, so you're the first person. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It. People love it. It's a great product. It's just not. <laughs> I just got really into the idea of it and then I haven't used it and then one night it, like I think my nephew came over and was playing with it or something and then one night I hear this like terrifying screeching noise <laughs> and I walk out and there's like a light coming from the living room I'm like what is going on is there an alien invasion <laughs> I walk downstairs and it was the Roomba just like I guess my nephew would press some buttons or something the uh, robot apocalypse uprising button apparently <laughs> yeah <laughs> when did you realize um, being a musician and actor could be an actual pain career? Um, in high school. I grew up in L.A., so I started auditioning for um, movies and television in high school. And then I, I also sang, you know, I did some, like, club shows and stuff and made, like, you know, $40 singing so mm -hmm. I was like all right that was fun and I made some cash what is your most prized possession hmm define possession you tell me I mean it could be a tangible item it could be <laughs> a memory I don't know a microphone that Brian Wilson gave to me um, I sang on his record, and then he, he gave me the mic that I recorded with. What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? Waking up at 5 in the morning, most days. What is something everyone should own, no matter the cost? What is something everyone should own, no matter the cost? I feel a little bit... Um, hesitant to suggest that everyone should own something no matter the cost. I mean, I would say a coffee maker, but not everyone loves coffee. Everyone should love coffee though. Yeah, so everyone should <laughs> everyone should have a coffee maker. <laughs> and or make it for friends. Last question. What advice do you wish someone gave you before you started your career? I think I may have had this piece of advice, but I'm not sure that it was, like, very loud and clear. But I wish someone had um, really drilled it in that you should always be true to your own self and tastes and, and not get too carried away with pleasing other people. I try my best to do that. I can't, you can't always. There's a give and take, and any time you're being, you know, paid to do something or you're collaborating with a lot of people, you're going to, there are going to be some compromises that you make, but you should at least, you know, try. <laughs> and I think at the beginning, when I first started, it, it was a little bit more confusing. And then once I sort of really discovered that, then, then you know you can always kind of stand by things you do, because if you like it, then, you know...
That was actress Zoe Deschanel speaking with producer Raghu Manavalan. And if you want to listen to other Marketplace quizzes with people like Samantha B and author Roxanne Gay, just go to our website, marketplace.org. Coming up later in the show, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's the business of comic books, and one author's take on the industry's origins. But before we get to that, more from you. A couple of weeks ago, Allison Green from Ask a Manager was on the show talking about the do's and don'ts of food at work. You know, it's a season. And perhaps not surprising, there were a lot of opinions on the matter. We're going to start with Alberta Brown on Facebook. She said, Don't microwave fish, garlic, or burn popcorn. Don't leave a mess for someone else to clean up. If you don't contribute to the potluck, don't attend. Thomas Alua Helu has other workplace food issues. Years ago, he said, I had someone open my sack lunch, stole my chicken sandwich, and now I have to tape over the top of the bag. Johann Zane has a different take. Eat whatever you want, he says. It's insulting when other people think they have a right to decide what you eat just because they think it's disgusting. But Joe Jamsky isn't having it. He replies, no, Johan, no. If you want to start a smell war in an office, there are no winners. What's next? Don't shower? There must be standards. Yes, that part is in all caps. If you have comments on anything you hear on the show, caps, no caps, whatever, send them along. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. And you can find us on Twitter. We're at marketplacewknd. And if you're listening via podcast, do me a favor. Rate us, leave a review, it helps other people find us. secret that a lot of things in Washington, like, say, the current tax bill, are influenced by lobbying from professional groups and, you know, regular people. Well, the same thing goes for regulations, and how that process works is part of what Chrissy Clark from our Wealth and Poverty Desk is exploring in the new season of Marketplace's documentary podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Today, Chrissy brings us the story behind a single regulation of peanut butter. In the 1950s, the peanut butter industry was dominated by two brands that are still household names. Like the man says, you like peanuts, <laughs> you like Skippy. Skippy and... Peter Pan peanut butter is so grand, smoothest peanut butter in the land. Peter Pan. And in fact, smoothness was the secret to both these brands' success. Food chemists had figured out that if you pumped hydrogen molecules into some of the peanut oil in peanut butter, turned it into hydrogenated oil, you could keep it from separating out of the peanut butter and make the product way more smooth and spreadable than the old-fashioned kind. But in 1958, a new brand with a little colorful kangaroo mascot hopped into town. There's a great big peanut paste in chip. What changes things is then along comes Jif. 
Angie Boyce is a researcher in bioethics at Johns Hopkins University, and she says, sure, new peanut butter brands were showing up all the time back then, but Jif's entry onto the scene was different for a couple reasons. It was, at the time, made by Procter & Gamble, one of the biggest companies around, and there was this rumor that started going through the peanut butter industry about Jif. No one's quite sure where the rumor came from. Maybe a company spy? Industrial espionage around peanut butter was actually really common in the 50s. Or maybe the rumor was just gleaned from rival companies carefully inspecting Jif's peanut butter. You know, peanut butter manufacturers have a lot of expertise in their product. So maybe through being able to taste the peanut butter and its sensory qualities, what in the industry they would call its organoleptic qualities, they might have been suspicious. What, what word was that? Organoleptic? Organoleptic. But somehow, through organoleptics or spying, there was this whispering going around that, wait a minute, Jif's peanut butter feels a little too smooth, a little too spreadable. Like, what's in this peanut butter anyway? And just as important, what's not in this peanut butter? Which is when something comes across the desk of an enforcement official at the Food and Drug Administration. This was just a very brief um, memo. Angie is one of the few people still alive who's actually seen this memo. She showed it to me when we went to the National Archives together to look through the FDA's peanut butter files. The memo starts. In accordance with our conversation, I am referring this peanut butter file to you. We have had at least two complaints from other manufacturers of peanut butter about the addition of foreign ingredients to peanut butter. Complaints about foreign ingredients in one brand in particular. Jif, put out by Procter & Gamble. But what sorts of foreign ingredients? The FDA did a little detective work itself. FDA had gone in and an inspector had been doing some inspections. That's FDA historian Suzanne Junod. She says inspectors went snooping around the Procter & Gamble peanut butter factory in Lexington, Kentucky for three days. And when those inspectors reported back, they had some intriguing news. According to Jif's own factory formula, like the kind that might be typed up and hanging on the factory wall, at the time, Jif peanut butter was only made of... 75% peanuts. Only 75% peanuts. But also, for texture, up to 20% something else. Crisco. Crisco base. Crisco. You know, the white stuff that people use to grease pie pans. So yeah, smooth and spreadable. But as Angie Boyce of Johns Hopkins points out... One would assume that uh, customers would not find uh, Crisco in their peanut butter as acceptable. Or maybe they'd be okay with it. FDA officials started asking themselves, is a jar of brown paste that's made of only 75% peanuts really peanut butter? If not, how many peanuts should peanut butter have? And what about that 20% Crisco? Crisco was, after all, just a form of hydrogenated oil, not peanut oil like the other peanut butter brands used, but a mixture of cheaper oils from rapeseeds and cottonseeds and soybeans. Would consumers care? Here's the FDA's Suzanne Junot again. The question, of course, is where's the dividing line between frank adulteration with cheaper ingredients and a legitimate product for which the consumer has shown support? Because that's part of the FDA's job, as required by law, by Congress, to create regulations that promote honesty and fair dealing in the interest of consumers. So in this situation, what is fair? 
That answer was clear for at least one consumer, a housewife-turned-activist named Ruth Desmond, who had recently co-founded the Federation of Homemakers. When Ruth heard about how many chemical additives, how much non-peanut stuff was going into many peanut butter brands at the time, Jif and Skippy and Peter Pan, she was shocked. Ruth died several years ago, but her daughter, Janet Swagger, remembers coming home from high school one day and her mom telling her, Can you imagine that these scoundrels are trying to pass cold cream off as peanut butter? Cold cream, that old-fashioned white goopy makeup remover? Janet says that became Ruth's nickname for all the hydrogenated oils. She said that's terrible. They want to make money, industry, by putting less and less peanuts in the peanut butter and... uh, Like she said, it's children that are eating these peanut butter sandwiches mostly, and here they're trying to put cold cream in there and use less peanuts. Ruth thought peanut butter should be at least 95% peanuts, and she started a letter-writing campaign. Almost 2,000 people from all over the country sent comments into the FDA. Those letters are also now stored in the FDA's peanut butter files. I understand there is some controversy over how many peanuts should be in peanut butter. Let's have plenty of peanuts and peanut butter. Some are typed, some handwritten. One person sent in a telegram. That just says, 100% peanut butter, please, please, please. It's an important food for children. We would like the protection of the regulatory agency in our interests. And as these letters poured into the FDA, it was clear that the battle over what makes peanut butter peanut butter was on. You can hear the rest of Chrissy's story, the battle behind how many peanuts should be in peanut butter, and what the FDA decided to do if you subscribe to The Uncertain Hour. Find it wherever good podcasts are found. Looking for a holiday gift for your favorite comic nerd? Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman! Well, the first ever Superman comic, Action Comics number 1, is going to be auctioned off next month. Its expected sale price is $1.2 million. So, okay, maybe not a regular holiday gift. But just how comics came to be such commodities is part of Dan Garino's new book, Comic Shop. He's a business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch and a lifelong comic fan. Welcome. Glad to be here. When you talk about this business model and sort of the weird characters and the specifics of it, how did the physical shops start when we're talking about, say, the 1970s? Within the world of comics, whenever you start talking about the first of something, you are just – it is just this invitation for this uh, (laughs) kind of knockdown, drag-out debate. Fair. In – 1973 is this this watershed moment. Until then, comic shops, they were buying them through the existing newspaper and magazine distribution system. For the first time, uh, there was an entrepreneur uh, who set up a system specifically for supplying comic specialty shops. Uh, the guy who set this up in 1973 was named Phil Suling, and he went to the big publishers like DC Comics, Marvel Comics – and he got them to agree to this system in which he would actually act as kind of the middleman where you would um, 
you could order a specific mm-hmm. quantity of something. It wasn't just this kind of catch-as-catch-can uh, system like the way it, it, it worked if you went to a newspaper stand or a magazine stand. Yeah, this is this very like kind of tailored supply and demand equation where the shops are, are getting exactly what their customers want. And I'm I'm so fascinated by this because it it's really very different from kind of traditional retail and distribution. It is. Now with the comic shop market, if they order fifty of something because they're confident that their customers are gonna buy it and they only sell five, they're stuck with the remaining forty five. It's a non-returnable model, which despite many changes since then, has kind of – in terms of its essential architecture, is largely the same. You use the word heyday to describe the sort of 1980s comic shop uh, flourishing. Why heyday and and who was buying these things then? I call it the heyday because this was when the second generation came in. That second generation, which you start to see in the late 70s and early 80s, are people who grew up going to the conventions and going to those early stores and they tended to have a little bit more business savvy. A really good store leads to other good stores and this led to and contributed to all of these independent comics and you would have these things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the mid-80s like ElfQuest in uh, the late 70s, these these independent titles that would just kind of bubble up. It's it's a real creatively fertile period. Well, so how did things then get to a crisis point in the 1990s when stuff kind of blew up? There's this constant tension in comics between the idea of being a reader, reading and enjoying and appreciating the comic and, all, and being a collector – Buying a comic with the thought that you're going to sell it down the road and treating it like a commodity through college. Exactly, exactly. And there was this idea that if you bought 50 copies of something, you could, you know, you could sell it for 10 times of what you paid for it. It was utterly unsustainable. The the kind of the key the key moments in this in this run up toward the crash, uh, one was the death of Superman. People hadn't seen something like that before where it was you know, supposedly this permanent change and it sold out instantly. It sold out almost everywhere the day it came out. And what that did for retailers and for buyers is it taught them, my goodness, the next big thing, I need to make sure I get it. The problem was that you know, six months or so later – uh, after the death of Superman, you have the rebirth of Superman, the return of Superman. He's back. <laughs> he wasn't dead after all. Um, in in the in the story where he comes back is is he's actually kind of fighting his way back through the afterlife. Um, in that comic, the one where Superman comes back, m- many retailers will say that's the one that led to the crash. That was kind of the uh, the 1929 moment um, where. After feeling kind of burned by the death of Superman because they underordered, they ordered that rebirth of Superman like crazy, and they had tons and tons of copies left over. As often happens when you hit a cyclical downturn, the businesses, the publishers, and to a certain extent the retailers, they took on a lot of debt, and it led to this just utter crash by the mid nineties. You know, I remember going into a comic shop in D.C. where I grew up uh, to buy a present for a friend of mine who was a, you know, a, a big fan. And I was a teenage girl. Uh, it was really intimidating. The guys were kind of gruff. I didn't really know what I was doing in there. H- has that model 
changed as the business has reborn itself a little bit and tried to find a new audience? One of the most interesting things and one of the most powerful dynamics that's taking place in comics today is a diversification of the audience. The best stores almost all have some female staff. The best stores have a really good kid section right inside the door. The best stores are not just these kind of clubhouses for men over the age of 40, which is um, – which which would describe, I think, a lot of the worst stores. You know, when we think about the sort of larger universe right now, obviously there have been a gazillion uh, Marvel and DC movies. Black Panther is coming out. And I guess I'm curious whether there is any – business overlap between the pop culture saturation that we've got on the one hand with the Hollywoodification of comics and the really diehard folks who are running these stores, or are these totally separate universes? I wouldn't say that they're totally separate, but they are more separate than just a casual outside observer might think. If if just 10, 15 percent of the people who watched the Captain America movie were regular buyers of the Captain America comic book, the comic book would be selling a lot better than it is. There is a, a line uh, near the end of this book from Joe Field, uh, who runs a store in California, saying, we are the cockroaches of pop culture about comic shop owners. But he means it in this good way, the like survive the nuclear holocaust kind of way. When you look forward – Will the cockroaches survive as a business model or is there something else out there that threatens them? A lot of the good retailers, they have kind of an apocalypse plan. You know, they've got the equivalent of the bomb shelter. The really good retailers have thought about this and have thought about if I'm an eight-year-old who has grown up reading comics now or has has read comics as long as I've been reading, that's going to be an adult customer in, in 10 years and – the, the retailers that are going to survive are the ones that can appeal to that person. Dan Garino is the author of Comic Shop, the retail mavericks who gave us a new geek culture. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. Coming up on the next Marketplace Weekend, a special show on the economy of disaster through the lens of Puerto Rico. Maria is the first Category 4 to hit there in nearly a century. 150-mile-an-hour winds ripping buildings apart, knocking out power everywhere. All of the electricity is out tonight. And more than two months later, power is still a huge issue on the island. Nobody wants to get the power on quicker than me and my team and PREPA and everybody who's doing this mission. That The fact is the challenges are just extraordinary with doing this. I mean, not only the terrain causes this issue, the material, getting people in here, it just is one of the most challenging missions that we've really faced. Um, but it's the also the number one priority for the Corps of Engineers to get this done. We head out of the capital, San Juan, to speak with business owners and nonprofit organizations about the recovery and how the island's debt crisis plays into it. People have been being laid off of their works. Some of the works are not going to be possible to, to um, recuperate. Some are waiting for the, the work to, to call and say, you can come in and work and gain your salary again, but it will be t- taking time for it. And still, they don't have the money they need to rebuild. 
So that is one of the other issues that have been brought into our attention. That's next week on Marketplace Weekend. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Bellinon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.